It's good to come to the scriptures with you today as we continue to think through some key truths for pursuing a spiritually fruitful life during this quarantine. I greatly desire for all of us to be fruitful, not just to survive this thing, but really to thrive spiritually in the midst of this trial. And so far, we've seen that this is a time for humility. This is a time for humility. This is a time to humble ourselves before God, to seek him, despite all our resilience and all our ingenuity. The starting point is actually to acknowledge our ignorance, is to acknowledge our frailty, is to acknowledge our inabilities, our limits, and for the human race as a whole, to acknowledge the need to repent of immorality and unbelief. We then marked that this is a time for joy, that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. God commands us to rejoice at all times and to find in Christ our greatest satisfaction, our greatest delight. And so to know peace that surpasses all understanding, to know what it means to be free from anxiety and a freedom that transcends whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And I made the point that there is a relationship between humility and joy, that humility produces joy. Humility is the soil in which joy grows. That is, that we can only really know joy if we humble ourselves before God. Today, I want to continue to build on these by adding contentment. Contentment. This is a time for contentment. And like humility is the soil from which joy springs, joy is the tree that bears the fruit of contentment. And we return once more to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. How great you are, Lord. How marvelous are your purposes. We could never fathom your plans, nor your governance over life and history. We cannot begin to grasp all of the intricacies and reasons for this virus and this pandemic and, and what it has done to the human race and nations and economies. But Lord, help us to know you in these days, in these days of hardship, to remember your promises and to rest in your great love for us. And that one day your love will deliver us completely from sin, from self, and from suffering. Amen. 
It would be helpful to recall Paul's circumstances as he writes this. Paul is in prison and has been for some time and will be for a little bit longer. His welfare while he is in prison is dependent upon others outside of prison, friends, other churches who have known his ministry. He is dependent on their supplies, their love for him, and their support. The church in Philippi has sent a messenger to Paul while he is in prison, a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has brought three things with him. Number one, he has brought an update. He has brought a letter from the church of Philippi and an update, a verbal update that goes with it. Thirdly, he has brought a care package. He has brought a care package, which is really mostly money, funds, for Paul to buy food and clothes. And so Paul writes his letter in which he affirms the priority of the gospel, that the gospel is more important than anything else. It's more important than his comfort. It's more important than his reputation. It's more important than uh, his freedom. In fact, Paul looks for an opportunity. He calculates all the time for the proclamation of the gospel, even while he's in prison. And so he even writes in chapter one of this letter how the gospel is spread in Caesar's household, how the guards have heard the gospel. He is always about preaching the gospel. And so in this letter, Paul affirms this and even affirms that his own life is expendable for the sake of the gospel. And he sends this letter back with Epaphroditus to Philippi. It is in this situation at the closing of this letter that Paul includes a word of thanks to the Philippians for this gift that they have sent to him with Epaphroditus. And he explains why he's grateful for it and he reveals the true source of his endurance. He has learned to be content. He has learned to be content. And you know what? We can be content too. We can be content too. You can know contentment, real contentment. In fact, back in verse 9, the verse immediately before our text today, Paul says to them, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So Paul, in saying that I have learned to be content, is calling upon us to have that same contentment. And according to this text, you can know contentment, first of all, even when people fail, whether you have a lot or a little, and you can know contentment because Christ strengthens you. So first, verse 10, you can know contentment even when people fail. Now, notice before anything else that Paul is doing exactly what he has commanded us to do back in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. What does Paul say here in verse 10? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. The cause for his joy is the Philippians' renewed concern for him. A concern that has been, from Paul's perception, missing at length. For a lengthy time, he has received no support from them and no word from them. Now, he acknowledges that they were indeed concerned for him. 
and that they just did not have the opportunity to show it. In other words, Paul is acknowledging, Philippians, I know you were concerned for me, but you lacked the ability to overcome whatever obstacles were keeping you from helping me. Paul knows this is the case, I think, because Epaphroditus has told him. That's part of Epaphroditus's report. He has shared with him, Paul, we desired to help you. We desired to help you way before now, but we just weren't able to get to you. We just weren't able to fund the trip. I wasn't able to make it, whatever, whatever the reasons were. Is Paul saying that he is now joyful because he has been disappointed by their lack of support? Is he saying that he hasn't been offended because of their failure to write, but now he's happy because he's received this report from Epaphroditus? Nope. Paul is completely unruffled by their long silence. He's completely unruffled with their missing support. The fact that the Philippians were inadequate to get to the Apostle Paul before this has not embittered him. It has not caused him to question God's faithfulness or God's goodness. Their gift, now received, has given him joy because it displays a genuine concern for him. That is an occupation with his troubles. They knew he was in prison. He knew they knew he was in prison. But why does their genuine concern for him give him joy? Well, surprisingly, it's not because his needs are being met by their gift. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. That doesn't mean that Paul wasn't in need. He's not saying that I didn't have any need. But hey, great, thanks for the gift anyway. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is that regardless of what level of need he was experiencing, what brought him joy was not the gift itself. It was the fact that it expressed a concern from them. And we actually get an explanation of what he really means farther down in this chapter in verse 17, where he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, your generosity means eternal credit. It means eternal reward credited to your account. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what brings me joy. People's efforts are not capable of meeting our needs. How often we bank on other people. How often we look to other people to meet our needs. We expect that at times, and when they fail, we get frustrated, we get angry, we become discontent. People's efforts aren't capable because they don't have all knowledge. They don't have all power. And we know that. We would answer that question correctly on a quiz. Do people have all power and knowledge to supply your gifts? Well, no. But we think in terms of their failure, their incapacity, even if they're people who love us because they 
can't fulfill our needs. They can't meet our needs. Neither do institutions. How many of us have, have over the last couple of months, hoped that the World Health Organization would come up with some kind of answer or even give timely information about the coronavirus? How many of us have hoped and even said multiple times, well, they'll need a vaccine. They've got to find a vaccine. We need a vaccine. How many of us have put our hope in scientific research as an answer to the pandemic? What about our governments? Do they have all knowledge and all power? No, they don't. And here's the thing. You and I can never be content. We can never know contentment if our hope depends on others, even others who care about you, like the Philippians cared about Paul. Now, when I say others, I mean other human beings. The answer doesn't lie within ourselves either, as we're going to see. But if our happiness depends on having our needs successfully met by other people, we're only going to be disappointed. We'll never know true contentment. True contentment is independent of others' abilities to provide for you, others' capacities to relieve your sufferings, to have the answers that we need. So even when people fail to supply, you can know contentment. You can know contentment. Furthermore, you can know contentment whether you have a lot or a little. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned. Contentment isn't innate. Contentment isn't something you instantly acquired when you became a Christian. It's something that is learned. The word here for learned is the word manthano. It's the word from which we get disciple. The disciples were learners. Contentment is learned in the process of discipleship. Or you might say spiritual training. That's where contentment is learned. Well, the coronavirus has opened a school for contentment then, hasn't it? Have you thought about all that you're experiencing as a training session for contentment? what Paul says. He says, I've learned to be content. Paul has learned in whatever situation he is to be content. He says it again in verse 12, in any and every circumstance. Our circumstances cannot and must not dictate our contentment. And really what we are going through by and large as a culture, is nothing compared to what Paul went through or what many other people in the world are going through and will go through because of this pandemic. Most of us are just having to sit at home. We had to cancel vacations. We're having to work from home. We had to set up some type of situation around the kids to get some work done. Very few of us are going hungry. Grocery stores are still open, even if you're having trouble finding flour or buttermilk. Grocery stores are still open. You can get food. Paul's talking about real loss here. He's talking about real need. 
Just as we are to rejoice in the Lord always, just as the peace of God surpasses all understanding, so we can be content in any and every circumstance. Now, Paul has some specific examples in mind. I just named a couple of them. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. The terms brought low, hunger, and need all describe poverty. Having little, little food, a lack of clothing, a lack of shelter. So suffering, the Paul's talking about suffering the pain of hunger. He's talking about being exposed to the elements. He's talking about suffering illness. All because of not having resources. Likewise, these other terms, to abound, plenty, and abundance, all describe having a lot, being well supplied, being filled even, satiated, having a bed and a hot shower. Paul is saying he knows both. He experienced both in ministry. We have more records of Paul's sufferings because I think that was more the norm for Paul. But there were times when Paul had nice meals, when he was hosted by friends in churches that supplied his needs and I'm sure cooked big meals and had people over to hang out with the Apostle Paul and learn from him. He knew what it was to enjoy blessing. But Paul says he knows both and that he has learned to be content in both in all circumstances. And that does bring up the question, why does Paul mention being content in plenty and in abundance? I mean, that would be obvious, wouldn't it? It's possible that Paul is implying that even with plenty, it is possible to be discontent. And we know that to be true. Having abundance does not necessarily ensure contentment. In two other passages, the New Testament warns us about the dangers of wealth and the need to be content. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10 through 10, writes this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So there are these warnings about going after wealth, going after money, and Paul isn't just talking about greed. The writer of Hebrews is not just talking about greed. But it is talking about a love of money and accumulation and resting on those things, depending upon those things, going after those things. 
But I think in the context of Philippians chapter 4, Paul isn't warning against the love of money. He is simply making the point that true contentment doesn't fluctuate when abundance is lost. That true contentment is steady regardless of circumstances. The content person can enjoy plenty, but doesn't become disappointed, embittered, disillusioned, and angry when they are brought low, when they are facing hunger and need. The believer is to find his or her contentment in something other than what they possess or what they lack. We can be content even when we have little. How? Paul says he has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger with the same steady contentment. It might look like Paul is just repeating himself here. He's already said, I've learned, but this is actually a different word. The words have learned the secret of facing is actually all one word. It's a different word from the word back in verse 11, have learned. This word here has to do with gaining insider knowledge and insight. Essentially, Paul is saying, I've got the inside track on abundance and need. What it means to experience both and how to be content in both. And verse 13 tells us the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, you can know contentment even when people fail. You can know contentment whether you have a lot or a little. And thirdly, you can know contentment because Christ strengthens you. You can know contentment because Christ strengthens you. Verse 13 is not just an inspirational cat poster. It is not a positive thinking slogan, nor is it a promise that you can somehow rise above all suffering and accomplish any feat. This verse sometimes is taken and twisted into a claim that you see through God's power, you can attain wealth and you can attain comfort and you can somehow overcome all of the obstacles to self-fulfillment. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says this in a context. The all things have to do with enduring need, going without. That's what Paul means. I can do all of this and remain joyful because I am content. We know from verse 5 that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord Jesus, who is near you, also strengthens you. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that in my deepest need, in my greatest lack, it is Christ who strengthens me. And that's not because he's an apostle. It's because he belongs to Christ. And you belong to Christ. And I belong to Christ we can know this same contentment because Christ strengthens you and Christ strengthens me. We don't know contentment 
because we grit our teeth and bear it. We do not know contentment because we pull ourselves up with positive thinking. Now, I'm not saying we should give in to brooding and dark thoughts and those kinds of things. But I'm saying the answer does not lie within ourselves. We can be content with little. We can be content in quarantines. We can be content with napkins for toilet paper. We can be content with canceled vacations. We can be content with having to live stream church. We can do all of that. All of these things. Because Christ strengthens us as we keep him the center of our desires and joy. I know that there is a variation of suffering. Some of us are just getting by just fine. We're working at home. We've got the kids. We're able to have food delivered. Everybody's healthy. I know some of you have been sick. I know some of you are more anxious. The income is not going to come as easily. Or maybe it is that you have a person at home with a disability and you're used to having care and support that you're not getting right now. We can be content. We are called to be content. To find our center, our joy in the person of Christ. It is Christ who strengthens you. And I want you to know his strength today and this week and for the remainder of this time. Let us cry with the psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There you go. Asaph, the writer of the psalm, he understood, didn't he? Make the Lord God your refuge today and this week. The elders of Crossway continue to pray for you all as we pray for each other. And, uh, and my, my prayer is that you will, you will know contentment and that in these things you will continue to thrive spiritually. Next week we'll finish this kind of brief series here, this interruption, as I talk about it's a time for praise. What will it mean? What does it mean to praise God? in the midst of difficulties, especially this particular difficulty we find ourselves in. God bless you.